If you can now stand for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. But also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, You deliver to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should receive what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I live about 13 miles from church. On any given day, that journey down the toll road could be 20 minutes, 45 minutes. Going home, sometimes it can be an hour. I looked on my Google Maps one day and I said, how long would it take me to walk from my house to the church? How long should it take me to walk to work? I looked on my Google Maps and it would say, take me five hours to do that from my house to the church. I'm not gonna test this accuracy, I promise. There was a day in which I may have attempted that trek. About 50 years ago, And about 50 pounds ago, 
I did something we called a walk for development. It was one of those things where you get somebody to sponsor you for every mile that you walked. And when I was in high school, I walked 30 miles on that day. I don't know how much money I raised. I don't even remember the cause we had that we were raising the money for. But what I can tell you that I do remember is how tired I was after that walk. It took me a day to walk it. It took me a week to recover. That was 50 years ago, 50 pounds ago, and I'm not going to do it again. Which is why I was drawn to the story of Walter Carr. I'm not sure if you've heard the story of Walter Carr or not. It's a fascinating story. Walter Carr is a college student in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was hired to take a new job with a company called Bellhops. Bellhops is a moving company with a new idea on how to, to help people move. On the night before his very first day at work, Walter Carr, his car actually broke down. His means of transportation to get to work would not work. He had no transportation, no means to get from his home to his place of work. And so after that, he pursued the only alternative that he had. He set out to walk to work, to walk to work. How far was it? Well, as his Google Maps told him from one point A to point B, his walk to work was going to be eight hours. Can you imagine walking eight hours in the middle of the night to get to a job in which you're picking up boxes and furniture for another eight to ten hours to be able to do that? But Walter Carr did that. He set out for his first day of work on foot in the dark in the middle of the night to be able to get to work on time. Walking alongside Highway 280 in Alabama at three o'clock in the morning, a police officer pulls up next to Walter and asks him what's going on. And Walter tells him his story. The police officer is so compelled by Walter's story that he actually puts Walter in his squad car and takes him to Whataburger. Whataburger's open all night to buy him some breakfast. And he also gave him money in which he could buy lunch for the rest of the day. The police officer then took Walter to a church, said that's the best place where he could stay overnight and be a safe place. And another set of police officers came and picked him up early that morning and drove him to his destination. These people's house were actually making that move. They heard Walter's story, that he had walked to work. And they were so compelled by his story that later they set up a GoFundMe account to be able to help pay for Walter's college education. But Walter's boss also heard of Walter walking to work on that day. When Walter was told to talk to his other workers and tell them what he did, he simply said, I walked to work. But when his boss heard that, his boss got in a truck from Chattanooga, Tennessee and drove to Pelham, Alabama in order to meet Walter face to face. And something very unique happened when he met him face to face. The CEO of Bellhops was so compelled by Walter's grit and his initiative and his faithfulness that he actually handed over the keys of his truck to Walter. Not just so Walter could drive it for the day, he canned over the keys so Walter could own that truck in order that he could get to work 
on time. If you think about that, that's a little bit of a parallel to what we see in our narrative this morning, in, our, in our, the parable of the talents. And if our earthly bosses, our earthly masters, are able to recognize our faithfulness and reward us in such a way, how much more will our Heavenly Father recognize our faithfulness and reward us in that way? The context of our passage this morning is in Matthew 25, and there are three parables in Matthew 25. The first parable is a parable that tells us that we need to be prepared for when the Lord returns, that we need to be anticipating, looking forward to the day, and be prepared for what he, when he returns to us. The second two parables, a parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats, tell us what it is that we should be doing while we are waiting for the Lord to return. The parable of the talents tells us what we should be doing in our work. The parable of the sheep and goats tell us how it is that we should serve. So in our passage this morning, I want to look at the parable of the talents, and I want to ask three basic questions of the text. Does your work matter to God? Does what you do when you leave this place and go out into the marketplace, whether you're a mother or a barista or a real estate executive, an accountant, an engineer, a lawyer, does what you do during the week matter to God? The second question I want to ask is, how does our work relate, in, put in, how does our work work in relationship with God? How does it affect that relationship with God. And the third question is, how should I think about my work through a biblical lens? So the first question is, does your work matter to God? And I think the text, you see that it actually does. You see that a master entrusted his property to these servants. It says in the Luke account, he told the servants to engage in business until I return. So in one sense, the, the, the master gave them a responsibility, a task to perform. And then he went away. But after a long time, our text says that he returned to the servants and he settled accounts with them. All that communicates is the Lord was concerned about what they did with the talents that the Lord had given him while he was away from them. So we ask the question, does your work matter to God? And I would say, yes, it does. Your work matters to God for several reasons. The first is your work matters to God because he cares about his creation. If you look at the biblical narrative, the trajectory of the, of the Bible, it begins in a garden, but it also ends in a garden city. Oftentimes we think about it as if we just want to get back to the garden. We have, but that's not the trajectory. The garden is, God is always pushing us forward to move from the garden to a garden city. And that implies that there's a means by which that garden city is developed. God is building a world, a culture to be able to do that. And our work contributes to that effort. Genesis 1 said, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and to subdue it. The idea is that God was talked to, talk to man and the woman about expanding the borders of the Garden of Eden until they covered the face of the earth. To build a culture, 
that would honor and bring glory to God. Leo DeCoster said it this way, work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others. The gift of self to the service of others that becomes the fabric of civilization. In return, civilization is the gift of others to the service of ourselves. In terms of what it means to subdue the earth, Tim Keller put it this way, work is the rearranging of the raw materials of creation to promote human flourishing. If you think about what that means when you look at Genesis 1, is the idea that God created a good creation, but was an unfinished product. God condescended to be able to allow us to participate with him in the finishing of that work. Now, Adam and Eve failed in that effort, but that's the effort that he gave us. He gave us the responsibility of finishing the work that he began. It reminds me of a prayer how C.B. Southern, one, one of our elders who's gone home to be with the Lord, used to pray. He says, God does not need us. But isn't it wonderful that he chooses to use us? God could have created a finished product. He could have finished the world like he wanted to. He could have created the new heavens and the new earth at the very beginning of time, but he chose not to. He chose to bring it to a point, a good point, and he decided that I'm going to work through you to be able to accomplish that. And what that means to me is not only does God care about his creation, but God cares about me and God cares about you. He said, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. In one sense, those words mean to grow and to protect. If I think about business ideas, that God put me in a business world many years to grow the business and also to protect the business at the same time. But those words are also used for grow and protect, are also used in the Bible as terms of temple worship. So we see in that, tran that transition that our work is also one of the most significant venues in which we provide worship for our God. The great commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great in the first commandment. Our work is a place in which we offer our services to God in order to worship him more fully. Dorothy Sayers said it this way, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is the work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing, but the thing one do, lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of a worker's faculty in the medium in which he offers himself to God. The full expression of our worker's faculty, the medium in which we offer ourselves to God. But not only is it an act of, of, of worship for us, work is also a place of our spiritual formation. If you've been in the marketplace anytime, you know work is a challenging place to be. To live out God's mandates in, the, in a broken and fallen world, God uses the workplace to shape us more and more into the image of God. Work is one of the most significant arenas for our sanctification. Your work matters to God also because he cares for his people. He cares for his people. Psalm 127 puts it this way, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. But the question is, how is it that the Lord guards the city? Immediately, our minds tends to think of angels as we surround the city, and the Lord, Lord does guard the city in those supernatural ways. 
But the Lord also guards the city in natural ways. He guards the city through armies. He guards the city through government. He guards the city through justice. He guards the city through economies. He guards the city through schools and education. He guards the city through families who nurture their children. All of these are natural means by which God guards the city on our behalf. The second commandment tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And the workplace becomes a place where we can love our neighbor through the creation of goods and services that allow our neighbor to flourish. So God loves the culture. He loves his creation. He loves me. He loves his people. But he also loves the extension of his kingdom. Steve Garber, who's a personal hero of mine, says it this way, work is integral, not instrumental to the mission of God. If you look at the great commandment, it says, go and make disciples. And one of the ways that you can interpret go is to be able to interpret and say, as you go, make disciples. As you go, wherever you go, make disciples. It reminds us of the passage that says, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you think about good works, good works are more than our work, but it's not less than our work. Our work contributes to that. When people see our good work, they have a means by which to glorify our Father in heaven. Today we're gathered here. Tomorrow, Monday through Friday, we scatter into the world. We have an opportunity if we wanted to let our light shine before men in such a way that as we scatter into, we can be 5,000 points of light as we go into the 13 different employment centers that exist around the city of Dallas. Your work matters to God because he cares about the extension of his kingdom. Your work also matters to God because he cares about the work itself. Think about it. 30 years in Jesus' life before his active ministry, what did Jesus do? He was a carpenter. He was a craftsman. Can you imagine that Jesus ever built an ugly chair? A chair that would not hold somebody to sit in? Jesus was a craftsman. He cared about the work. Not just the work as a means to an end, but he cared about the work itself. It reminds us of God when God comes at the end of the creation episode. It said, God rested from his work. It's not that God needed the rest. It's not that he was tired. It's, it's, it's like an artist who steps back from his work and looks at his work and admires his work and says, I appreciate the work of my hands. So one of the prayers we have is we pray that God would establish the work of our hands. Question two was, does your work affect your relationship with God. If you read the text and just in a, in, a, in a very cursory way over the top of it, it looks like the text may say that we are actually saved by our works. You see the fruit of the labor by the two, the two uh, those who were commended, and you see the lack of fruit on the other, and it looks like that their relationship with God is affected by what they produced. But I think that's a, an inferior way to actually look at the text. We know, for example, that uh, Ephesians 2.8 tells us, for it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, not as a result of works, 
so that no one should boast. So we know we're not saved by work. So how do work in this passage, how does it instruct us about our relationship with God? I want to start and look at either one, two. How is it the, the servants were either commended or condemned by the master as he spoke with them? So I want to begin first with the servant who was condemned. What was the servant's attitude in view of God? What did he say? He said, you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. What does that mean? If you reap where you don't sow and gather where you have no seed, that means that you're basically a dishonest master. You're taking that which somebody else has done the work for. Jesus responds to that when he says, he said, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I gathered no seed. But if you notice in the text, there's a question mark behind that. It's not that he's agreeing with that statement. He's just saying, that's your opinion of me? And if that is your opinion of me, why don't you just invest my money with the bankers and draw interest? But drawing interest at this time was actually against the law for the Jewish people to do. So he said, if, if I am a dishonest master, why don't you just invest my money and make interest with the bankers, which is also a dishonest activity? He had a very inferior, a very negative view of his master. He said, I was afraid, and so I hid. And when you look at that, you tend to think about the language of the fall. When Adam and Eve failed and they sinned against God, what did they do? They were afraid and they hid. We we're compelled by either one or two motives, either fear or love. And I would suggest that the condemned servant was motivated by fear, wherein the commended servants were motivated by love. What did God, the master, say to them? He said, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. I think a good way for us to, to see the commendation that the, the servants had was to be able to look at it through the lens of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, for by what? By faith, the people of old received their commendation. It said, By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. It was not his sacrifice that he was commended for, it was what? It was his faith that was manifested in his sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. What is it that pleases God? The text continues. And without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. The faithful servants were commended not for what they produced, but they were commended because of their faith and trust in a loving master. So we're not, we know we're not saved by our works, 
But the question is often asked, are we saved by works? In the classes I teach, I ask that question often. Are we saved by works? And the quick hand goes up very quick. says, no, we're not saved by works. I said, don't go there too fast. Because it's not that we're not saved by works. It's that we're not saved by our works. But we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience to the Father is the means by which we have a relationship with God. He earned for us our justification through his perfect obedience. It says in Philippians 2, he was obedient even to the point of death, death upon a cross. And because of that, God said, this is my servant whom I'm well pleased. Jesus said in John 17, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But if we're saved, not by our works, but we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ, how does God see our work? Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. So the question is, does God see our work as filthy rags? Well, see, if, he's, if he's looking at our works as a terms for our justification, we can have no good that, will just, that brings to us our justification. But if he sees our work through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, and through that lens, he sees our work and commends us for that and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Westminster Confession says it this way, not yet withstanding, the person of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere although it may be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. It says that God sees our work through the finished work of Christ and he is pleased to accept our work as an offering to him. John Calvin says it this way, you know that men were created to express the purpose of being employed in labor of various kinds and that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when every man applies diligently to his own calling and endeavors to live in such a manner as to contribute to the general advantage. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Our work, the work that the master received from the servants, produced joy. And it reminds me of my granddaughter, Mary Margaret, who has a certain gift of art already at five. But Mary Margaret draws pictures for me all the time, and she sends them to the, in, me in the mail. And they're not perfect work, but what do I do with those pictures? I stick them up on the refrigerator and do that. And I admire her work and I praise her for the work, even though it's imperfect. Why do I do that? Because she's mine. She's my granddaughter. And I love her and I love her work and I love her efforts in that. Question three, and quickly, is how should I think about my work? If our work is accepted by Jesus Christ, through Christ, how is it that I accept my work? In your bulletin, you see a, a little, at the bottom of the note page, are six different boxes. And it's that in those boxes, they ask these basic questions. Why, how, who, what, where, and when. 
Just basic questions we ask of our work. And so we looked at, why is the idea of purpose? It's our purpose. What is the purpose in our work? Well, we know the idea, the purpose of our work is to do what? Westminster Confession also tells us that the chief end of man in all things, including our work, is to do what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. It reminds me of Eric Little in Chariots of Fire. In Eric Little, he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I employ those gifts that God's given. What happens? I feel his pleasure. So we step into our work and we glorify God and God brings us in, expresses his joy upon us. How is the idea of character? It's the idea that we choose beforehand how it is that we're going to do our work. God's character, God says this, he said, be holy for I am holy. Iris Murdoch puts it this way, that the, at the point of choosing, most of the choosing is already done. We have to decide ahead of time how it is we're going to respond to the challenges that face us in the marketplace. I think that's why we take wedding vows to tell us we will be faithful to the other person because we make a vow ahead of time on how it is we're going to behave when the world challenges us. The who is the identity piece. How do I image God in what I do? If we're created image God, in, in the image of God, how do I image God? It's pretty easy to think about those who are creative. Those who are creative, they, they're able to create because God is a creator. He's one who brings beauty into the world and be able to, to hone that beauty into a fine piece of art. It's also easy for us to see the idea that God is redemptive. God fixes that which is broken. So we have many doctors in here, and that is it. Doctors are people who, who work to heal us, to fix that which is broken in our lives. A good friend of mine who sits on the front row often here is an auto mechanic. He fixes that which is broken. You can see him imaging what God does in his world. So God is creative and God is redemptive. God is also just. If we are pursuing justice in the world, we image God. It also says that God is one who provides everything that we need. If we're an employer, we provide goods and services. God is using us as his means of provision to provide the roofs over our heads, the clothes on our back, and the food on our table. But it said God is also a sustaining God. There are many jobs that don't fall into those other categories, but we know that God holds all things together by the power of his word. And so if you're in a company in a middle management role, you are in a role in which God is sustaining that business through your efforts, through the work that you do. We also know that God is a God who brings order out of chaos. And so we see many things in our world where God allows us to be able to see our talents bringing order out of chaos. One of the questions you have to ask also is how has God gifted you? This morning we had a beautiful example of Stephen and Jared up here. God has given those men musical gifts and musical talents. And they could use those in many different ways, but they offer those as ways to serve his people and to demonstrate love for God. They also develop those gifts. Those are not just gifts that are in their rawest form. Many hours, many days, many weeks, many months, many years have been used to craft those gifts into the, the shape that they are today, that they can be able to do this and create for us an opportunity to rest in the beauty of God through the beauty of their music. The what is the idea of value? 
Why do you hire a doctor? Because you want him to make you well. You want somebody who does their job well. Every one of us, in some ways, is to, be, to pursue adding value through our competence in the world. We think about the two pilots who landed the planes. The Sully Sullenberger and the Tammy Faye Schultz landed their planes. Their job was to do what? To get that plane safely on the ground with their passengers. They need to do their jobs well. All of us need to pursue our work because we add value to the marketplace. We add value to God's creation by doing our job well. We have sound guys who sit in the back and you never know that they're there unless something goes wrong. But they work hard to be able to help us to be able to deliver God's word here on a regular basis. Debbie Blanton has worked with me for oh, over 20 years. She knows my idiosyncrasies. She knows who I am. She knows my weaknesses. Many years ago when I moved to McKinney to plant the church there, a lady came alongside. She wanted to help me. And she said, what can I do to help? And I said, call Debbie and ask her. She would know better. So she called and asked Debbie that question. She said, Debbie's response was, when she said, how can I help Bill? Or with what can I help Bill? And she said, anything with paper. <laughs> I am paper challenged. And so I need help in that area. But Debbie brings order out of chaos in my world. She keeps me from running into the ditch. So we add value in the things we do. We also have a context in which God has placed us. That's the where. God has placed you in a garden. What's the garden he has placed you in? He's put you in a place to work it and to keep it. He's also placed you there to pray for it. When I think about when I was with the Trammell Crow Company, God placed me there sovereignly, I think, in that place to do his work while I was there. But one thing I used to do was to pray the Lord's Prayer about my work. Our Lord who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done at the Trammell Crow Company as it is in heaven. To make that specific to the place that we work, to be able to pray for it. And the last one is that God calls us into different seasons in our life. We think about Chad moving from here to, to Nashville. Chad was with us in Dallas. He was at SMU. He had a season there. He had a season with us here. And he's also moved to a different season there. But he also calls us into a different seasons in our life. And, and I want to speak to those who are in my generation, those who are retired or retiring soon, to be able to think about that. How is it that God would use us for his glory? How is it that in this season of life, God can use us? We may move out of the marketplace onto the sideline, we feel, but God doesn't call us to the sideline. He calls us to continue to be active for his kingdom. And one of the things I think he can do is use us who have many years of experience to be mentors to those who are just growing up in the faith, to pass the baton to the next generation, to be active in that process. So just as a review, in this season and in this place where God has put me, God has blessed me to be a blessing as I add value through the faithful use of my talents and the reflection of God's character to his ultimate glory. That's how we should see our work to be able to look at that. The first that really helps me to think about that is 
Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is at work. God is at work in us. And God is at work through us. Mark Davis often tells us that God is as interested in the work that he does in us as in the work he does through us. And God has blessed each of us with many gifts, talents, resources, and opportunities. Again, Steve Garber challenged us to see these talents through God's eyes. He asked us, are our talents passports to privilege, position, and power? Or are our talents summons to stewardship, sacrifice, and service? Returning a moment to Walter Carr's story. What do we know about Walter that sheds some light on his motivation to walk to work in the middle of the night, eight hours? Walter was originally from New Orleans, and his mom and he left New Orleans because of Hurricane Katrina. He said he was raised by his parents to help others, but he also recognizes God's work in his life. To my parents, he says, thank you for being there for me, for the hard work and the dedication they put in me to keep me on the right path. And I want to thank God because without him, I wouldn't be here. Walter was thankful for his job. He said, this is the first job in a long time to give me an opportunity to get hired. I wanted to show them that I got the dedication. I'm going to get this job done one way or the other. Nothing is impossible unless you make it impossible. You could do anything you set your mind to. I've got God on my side. And then he said this, God bless me for me to be a blessing. God puts us, each of us, into our various places of influence in our workplaces in order for us to be a blessing. He blesses us in order that we may bless the world and bless others through our work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Let us pray. We thank you, O God and Father, that you have blessed us immeasurably, that you've given the gifts and the talents that we have. And we pray, Father, that you give us the strength to employ those gifts and talents for the sake of your name and the sake of your people. We pray this in the strong and majestic name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.